Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ahir Shah. Today, money. You spend it, you save it. In my neighbor's case, you use it to pay for a noisy bathroom remodel while I'm trying to record this podcast. But how does money actually work? That's the question that Gavin Jackson, leader writer at the Financial Times, seeks to answer in his new book, Money in One Lesson. Gavin's book is a fascinatingly informative and accessible journey through the nature, history, and role of money, helping demystify that most mysterious of things. Gavin, welcome to the bunker. Thank you very much, Ahir. So, Gavin, I'm going to start off by asking you the first question that you seek to answer in your book, which is, what is money? Ah, now that is a tricky question. So, um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so what I sort of argue that money is in this book is a sort of representative of social trust. So it's a something that we all believe in, but we're not entirely sure why. So I opened that chapter with the discussion of the Irish banking strike of 1970, which was uh, all the banks went on strike for better pay, conditions, that kind of thing. But it didn't bring down the whole monetary system, as you might expect it did. What happened was people just wrote out checks to one another. So, you know, you could just do, Gavin owes up, here, £10. Pounds. Mm-hmm. And then that can just circulate as if it was money. And so people created money out of nothing. You know, I could give you this check, but then you could give it to someone else, and they could give it to someone else, and so on and so forth. And because everybody trusted each other in Ireland at the time, they, they knew who each other was, that made, meant it could work. And so that's kind of what I argue that money is. And all these other things we have, you know, gold coins. I could have the example of tins of mackerel in prisons. These are just ways we have of maintaining trust. So gold, we trust that gold's going to keep its value because it always has. So that's one way of having trust. Another way is that we have governments with a monopoly of force to make us accept certain things as money through taxes and so on. But these are all just basic ways of keeping that trust going. That's sort of what I argue. It's not a coin. It's not uh, necessarily a bit of paper. It's trust. And just these things we use are representative of that trust. So I wondered if you could talk a bit more about the sort of authorities that are often behind that trust? Because I know in discussing the situation in Ireland, you tried to draw attention to the role that publicans ended up taking on in order to mediate exchanges. Yeah, exactly. So so that was what really helped these checks turn into money is that, you know, the, the local uh, landlord at the pub, he sort of knew who was good for the money. You know, he ran bar tabs or she ran bar tabs in normal times. So they knew, you know, who was a reliable person who would pay you back, even if you extended credit to them for a few days. So that gave them an advantage and they could, you know, take on this role of monitoring borrowers and monitoring people and knowing who, who was good for it. 
in our society, you know, when banks aren't closed, it's the banks that do that. They keep records of everything we do, and then they know whether to give us some more loans or not. And then that is how the mo- most money gets created, is that bank lending. So so there's the commercial banks, which are one big, big part of who's in charge of the monetary system. The other is the central bank. Central banks are kind of mysterious, you know, the, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, that kind of thing. And they have that same role, but for the bankers, they monitor the banks and they let banks transfer money between one another using the debts of the central bank. I think that one of the things that I really enjoyed throughout your book is that, for example, with trying to illustrate the way that money and social trust work through the example of the Irish banking strike and the systems of checks and pubs, is just the way that you weave through these sort of concrete examples from the world in order better to illustrate what these phenomena are and how they work. And another one that I thought was really fascinating was how you sort of teach the reader about what inflation is and how it works through the story of the way that cowrie shells worked as currency. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, so this was something I didn't really know until I started researching this book, which was that the cowrie shell, cowries are these species of sea snail. They have white shells. You've probably seen them all the time on jewellery. People wear them as necklaces and bracelets. They were used as money in West Africa for about, oh gosh, 400 years, until about 1950. They became the sort of, because of this, because they were used as money in West Africa, they became the dominant currency of the transatlantic slave trade. So they come from the Maldives and the British and Dutch East India companies would ship them from the Maldives to auction houses in London and Amsterdam and their slave traders would buy them and ship them to West Africa. And so you've got this huge monetary influx. You've got all these people essentially bringing brand new money with them to do trade. And it didn't really lead to massive uh, hyperinflation when they did in the era of the transatlantic slave trade. And there's sort of some speculation about why that is. It could have been that you know, the slave trade was financing the growth of these expansionist empires that were pushing out further into the African interior. And that meant more and more people were using the, the cow shells so that there was more money, but there was more transactions taking place. So they sort of grew in tandem. That's, that's one possibility. Another one may be that they were used more in art and, and things like that, which is you can find all these beautiful treasures made of cow shells in European museums because, you know, that's where African art ended up. And that was sort of the same thing that was going on in Europe at the same time as people were getting all this gold and silver and turning it into art and jewellery in Europe. But about 50 years later, so after the end of the transatlantic slave trade or the sort of formal end, cow shells get this huge new lease of life because of the palm oil trade. So palm oil is vital for the Industrial Revolution. That's this sort of industrial loop. And so then there's this huge new influx of money once again. And this time, it does lead to something sort of like hyperinflation because, you know, they couldn't grow any more palm trees. So there's no more transactions taking place. You know, palm oil takes about three to five years, I think, for palm tree to bed fruit. So you just have more money chasing more goods and then you get you get inflation. And so it's this good example. If you have these two different situations, more money is coming in in both of them, but only in one, it leads to inflation. And so I thought that was just this really good illustration that, you know, We have this conversation all the time at the moment about quantitative easing, this money printing, and whether that's going to lead to inflation. And so I thought that was just this really nice example of illustrating that, you know, sometimes more money does, 
but not always. I think throughout the book, one of the things that struck me is the importance that you seem to attach of, you know, it could have been very easy to write a book like this. And when you're using your illustrative examples, just to pick things from Britain or the Anglosphere or Europe or the West, but you don't do that throughout the book. And you really do sort of broaden things out to include because like money has been such a universal phenomenon. So you treat it in a properly universal way. And I wonder why, was that something that was particularly important to you when you were writing and researching the book? Yeah, definitely. So I think there's sort of two, two reasons why that is. is There's sort of a common view of the evolution of money, which goes from sort of, we started with barter, and then we moved to metal, and then we moved to paper, and now we're going digital. And it's very sort of linear, progressive thing of money getting more and more abstract. And the first thing is that isn't true. You know, we didn't start with barter. The first money was clay tablets in, in ancient Mesopotamia. It was sort of digital. It was on silicon just as it is today. It was this abstraction that circulated among it. And so I think when you get out of the sort of European history of money, you can get rid of that ideas a little bit. You can reject what we think of as this is the way that societies work and this is how all of them have always worked by looking at elsewhere and seeing how things were different. And the other thing is, yeah, I just thought, you know, if you're writing this book, book about money, money is sort of one of the basic things that is there in most societies, along with language and, and, and that kind of thing. So you've kind of got to have it as a bit universal. You've got to look at what's going on elsewhere. And I think when I decided that that was something I really wanted to, to do, to get out of using these same few examples that, you know, I've read quite a few books on money, <laughs> and, <laughs> as you can imagine. And all of them are worse. <laughs> Every exactly. single one is worse than yours. Yes, that's my point. They all have the same <laughs> examples, and mine has some new exciting ones. So, <laughs> so yeah, and when, when I started looking, I found these stories that I didn't know about. So that was very, that was great, because I've written a much more interesting book, because I didn't, I didn't look just at Europe and America. Well, certainly, as a layman coming to the topic, what what you described about this sort of linear progression of the way people think money works, that, that's very much what I thought as well, because there, there is an instinctive, intuitive thing to, yeah, initially you're like, X cows equals Y sheep, and then you get to abstracting it and everything. But when you you gave, for example, yeah, the the experience in Sumeria when silver was sort of like abstracted in a way that I, I didn't think that it was. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we, we sort of started with debt, and then we went to coins, and we like to think that we went from coins to debt, but it it was completely the other way around. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Of course, now that a lot in the in the contemporary world is we discuss sort of London's role particularly, but the role of the UK more broadly in the global financial system. And, you know, we have all of these overseas territories that are used for definitely totally legitimate things that you just want to disguise because you're hiding some money for a present that you're going to get for your child. How did you feel sort of writing this book as a British person? And it, it feels like almost in the history of money, for many of the last few hundred years, that this country has been 
a sort of central character in the way that the story of money has developed recently. And what 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 could you say to that of the of the sort of history of this country and where we are almost now? Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, in the sort of the heyday of what they called the classical gold standard, London was the centre of it. John Maynard Keynes, the, the famous economist, he, he described the Bank of England as the conductor for the monetary orchestra in that period. And that's sort of gone now. And I describe that in one of the chapters of my book is sort of how the most powerful country's money tends to, to have this dominant role. So I, I talk about the end of the Second World War, the, the Bretton Woods Conference, where uh, sort of the US formally took over as the dominant monetary power with the dollar becoming the most important currency in the world. So, yeah. So how does it feel to write a book about money as a good expression? I think it's... Yeah, I think it's in, it's like writing a book about anything, really, because you tend to see all these ways in which Britain and the British Empire has influenced the rest of the world. And in my head, I'm now just doing sort of you and my dad in the handshake meme saying, it was the British Empire. <laughs> you will have a lot to talk about with Vikram Shah. I now want to ask you sort of a couple of my outstanding questions about money, because there's, the fantastic thing I think about this book is that it was a lot of these questions that you, you wanted to know the answer to, but you maybe would have felt a bit silly asking because you're like, oh, no, surely when they mention this thing about interest rates on the news, like I'm, I'm sure everyone else knows that. So I'll just sort of go along. But your book has emboldened me to ask these questions that I still have. And so this is my sort of semi quick fire round for you. Now, you described something called consoles. This was where like a debt would be issued and you just get certain amount back each year and you didn't necessarily have to pay off the whole sum until some vast distant point in the future. And in the history of this country, we've done this to finance things in the past and you just sort of get a certain rate of return regularly, which, as you said, was uh, where some of this he has 10,000 a year stuff in Jane Austen comes from, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so the aristocracy would have put, well, they owned lots of land, but other than land, they would put their money in British government debt, and British government debt was this consuls. Consuls would pay you forever, and they'd pay you whoever owned them, even if it wasn't the first person who bought them, so you could leave them to your kids. So this is why these inheritances were £10,000 a year, because they knew how much they were going to get, because the British government had agreed to give them it. My question about consuls is that if we're sort of wanting to get money to invest in things or make things or what have you, why, why don't we do that anymore? Well, we could. And I sort of think maybe we should have done it for the coronavirus pandemic, because what we used to do for war, sort of Napoleonic war and things like that, is we'd issue loads of short-term debt and then we'd swap it into these consoles and they just last forever. But the reason is that usually it's because the interest rate is higher, is that if you borrow for a long time, you usually pay a lot more than if you borrow for a short time. Now, borrowing long is quite good for governments because that means they don't have any risk that interest rates will go up in the future and then there may be some sort of problem in paying them off. But the, the counter side of that risk is that you have to pay a bit more every year if you're borrowing for a long time. So governments try and balance these two things. They try and make sure they extend how long they've got to borrow for. So there's not a risk that interest rates go up and then that causes problems. But they don't want to extend too long because then the interest rate they pay today is higher than maybe they need to. Fantastic. I feel as though I've got one question down and don't feel that ridiculous having asked it. So I'm definitely asking the right person at least. And my, my second one was you explain inflation in your book, but then obviously when we think of inflation and like as bad as it could go, like the hyperinflations of Weimar Germany or in more recently in Zimbabwe. And one of the examples that you gave was the case in Zimbabwe of like, you know, a bus fare being one thing in the morning when you're traveling and another thing in the afternoon when you're making the return journey. And I just wondered, how can 
we get into situations where things can change quite so rapidly. Because when I was reading that, I was imagining having my Oyster card and, you know, getting a bus to another part of London and then getting back. And instead of 155, it's 165 and that over a year, you're like, okay, that kind of makes sense. But in a shorter period of time would be quite staggering. Yes, yeah, so I describe money as social trust. This is what most people lose trust, is they're all, always trying to sort of stay a little bit ahead of it. That if you think price is going to go up in the future, you probably want to put them up now to get ahead of the fact that they'll go. And it sort of spirals out of control in that way. Everyone's sort of anticipating it. But what's interesting about hyperinflations is they tend to only happen in these most extreme circumstances. And basically, it's when a government decides that something else is more important than stopping hyperinflation. So you gave the example of Weimar, you know, that was shortly after the French occupation of the Rhineland, right? And it's because Germany decided more important than keeping little inflation was stopping that occupation or the opposition to occupation. In Zimbabwe, it was because the government decided what was more important than stopping inflation was keeping the army on side because they were, seemed like they were about to lose, lose control. And so in those circumstances, the system just sort of keeps printing money, keeps creating money, and everyone knows there's no end in sight because the government's lost control. It's lost power, effectively. And so trust vanishes. So it seems like what you're really saying is that basically the way that you want to think of money most importantly is trust. And it's the strength of that trust or the breaking down of that trust that defines our relationship with it. And in many ways, our relationship with one another as a result of that. Yeah, I'd say that money is just a, a great mirror to the rest of society, even down to the physical appearance. What we put on it shows who we are or who we'd like to be. And then how, how we treat it, you know, and how, how it works shows something else about, about who we are as well. Is part of that then, if the important thing here is trust, is that what's sort of behind, you know, when people talk about, and I very much am frightened of this sort of thing, so the better you can explain it, the better for me, and I'm sure for many of our listeners. But when we talk about stuff like the blockchain and stuff, is that just a way of sort of getting around the trust problem? Yes. Yeah, so, so blockchain, sort of the, the goal is to create a kind of trustless money. It's that you don't need to trust anyone. There's no central bank. There's no private bank. You have some code and that code can't be changed. So you don't need to trust any individual or any person. You just have to trust the code. In reality, it doesn't quite work like that because there's all these sort of middlemen in the blockchain world as well. Bitcoin exchanges, that kind of thing. But that's the goal. That's the goal of Bitcoin. It's sort of trying to create digital gold because you don't need to trust an individual to know that a lump of gold is a lump of gold. You can sort of just check it. So it's not that trust is behind Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a rejection of this system of trust we've built up with banks and central banks and so on. It's an attempt to opt out. It's sort of that's why it's just this kind of libertarian dream that you can do away with governments and you can do away with, you know, sort of this this violence that they see as being embodied in courts and police and so on. Of course, over the time since you first began writing this book and the world that we exist in today, much has changed, to put it lightly. Even over the course of the last few months, we've gone from periods of people saying that, oh, no, this inflation is transitory to, oh, no, this uh, might be something that's here to stay and who knows where it's going to go. So has the experience of really the pandemic and the monetary and fiscal responses to it sort of changed the way that you think since writing the book or drawn your attention to something in the book that you think is even more important to acknowledge now? Well, when I was writing this book, a lot of people were sort of talking about modern monetary theory, MMT as it's known, you might have heard about this. But the big idea there was sort of governments can keep spending a lot more money because 
you know, the, the problem we have if governments spend too much isn't that they run out of cash. They can always pay it back because they control the currency that they spend in. You know, so it's like they have a license to print money. So we don't need to worry about them paying it back. What we need to worry about is inflation. And I think that I was really, you know, that was the big debate when I started. And that sort of got away because inflation's come back. And so, you know, if we're worried about inflation, that's not, you know, we were worried about in, about deflation during the process I was writing it. And now people are much more worried about inflation. So that's just changed the questions people have asked themselves or the, the way they look at the world. But hopefully... Hopefully, the book can give you some insight into both situations. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> either, either way, you'll know, you'll know a little bit more about what's going on. We've discussed inflation. Could you quickly describe to us what on earth deflation is? Yeah, deflation is probably a lot worse than inflation. So it's, it's prices falling. The overall level of prices falling, which may sound great. So it may sound that you get more and more for your money. But the, the problem with deflation is that um, our debts don't change. So uh, mortgages, uh, you know, everything like that is student loans. Um, they're all fixed in terms of cash. You owe a certain amount of pounds, dollars, euros, whatever, and you have to pay that back. But you earn your money probably indirectly unless you're self-employed by selling something. So if the price of that is falling, whatever you're selling, but your debt's remaining the same, you're getting a lot worse off. It's getting harder and harder to repay. And that is when people really get into trouble in economies because it just gets into this endless cycle of getting worse and worse and worse. People are getting in debt. They don't spend. That means prices fall further. Debts get worse and so on. And that is really sort of what happened in the Great Depression is that this deflation just kept feeding off itself in the same way that hyperinflation, that we talked about before, feeds off itself. Now, Gavin, you are, like me, a millennial person. You, unlike me, know far more about the way that money works. And so my sort of penultimate question to you is to try and get you to really settle a thing once and for all for me, which is I, like any good British millennial, love nothing more than complaining about the impossibility of affording housing in contemporary Britain. Of course, the older generation say, well, come back to me when you have interest rates that were 15% and inflation that was whatever percent. And then in my head, I'm just being like, yeah, but you bought your house for 6p. Surely it can't have been that bad. That it's very difficult to sort of weigh up what's really significant in this thing. Like, was it the fact that they didn't actually have to put much capital in or does the fact that they had these big interest rates or big inflation, does that change anything? So basically, are the boomers right? <laughs> Do we have to give them that or can we still be good complaining millennials we millennials are right i'll give you a definitive answer because yes. <laughs> low interest rate mean that sort of things that persist go up in value because as i explained in the book interest is sort of the price of time and so houses which persist for decades you know you put money down on them and then you pay that off forever you know or 30 years typical more 25 years but that interest rate when interest rates go down the price of things that last goes up. So having low interest rates is great if you already own a house because the cost year to year gets less. But the cost of sort of getting onto that ladder, taking that first step gets higher and higher, you know, because if you have to get a 10% deposit and the price has gone up 10 times, that deposit's gone up 10 times. It's taking that first step gets harder and harder. So while lots of things have got cheaper, you know, boomers will say, Foreign holidays, Netflix, avocado toast, those are the famous ones. Those have got cheaper, but sort of the, the price of economic security, pensions, houses, those kind of things has got more expensive. 
So I think on this one, millennials are right. Oh, and plus, the 15% interest rates they complain about was only for about an hour. (laughs) Uh, But what an hour. Finally, Gavin Jackson, you end your book with almost like a defense of economics, a defense of your discipline, which is economics is the one that's called sort of the dismal science, right? And I think that that's, that's a big part of what's so great about making a book like this, that money can seem like this mystified thing that you're not really supposed to understand. And economics is something that happens out there, but not really to you and everything. But, uh, but, but you write very nicely in defense of your subject and discipline. So just to close, why, why would you say that you think um, economics and the study of money and knowing about money is for your everyday person still a really important thing? Well, I, I sort of think it's who we are. It's what we do, you know, every day is we, most of us go out and earn money and we do, you know, and then we spend it in our free time. And so it is as much as we might wish it weren't true that we didn't live such commercial lives, we do. So if you're interested in people, then I think you should be interested in money because it's, you know, it is one of the most basic building blocks of a society. So that's why I think it's fascinating, because it tells us so much about who we are. And Gavin, after reading your book, I can very much concur that it is an extraordinarily fascinating story and one worth reading. Gavin's book is Money in One Lesson. Gavin, thank you very much for joining me on The Bunker. Thank you very much for having me. Listeners, thank you for joining us on The Bunker Daily. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Do follow us on your favourite podcast app, and you can get every edition of The Bunker early, plus merchandise and more, when you support us on Patreon, using some of that money that Gavin knows so much about. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ahir Shah. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich and Jacob Archbold. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison. Theme tuned by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.